we may change this, the national anthem. We may find another song. I don't think it's going to happen because someone wants to write one. I think it'll happen because of a historical moment where this amazing thing happens and people rise up to save the world. And there's a musical marker of that moment. And that song will become maybe the better national anthem someday. But it's, it's hard to sort of write a national anthem or commission an anthem or make one up because they're born of amazing moments. They're not really created to, to order. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I dig into another musical mystery, specifically a song I keep hearing again and again wherever I go in America. For example, I was recently visiting a K-12 school in north-central Kansas recording audio for a different episode when I heard the song at a basketball game. Yep, the Star-Spangled Banner, America's National Anthem. It's a song I've had a sentimental relationship with my whole life, in part because when I was a kid I dreamed of winning a gold medal in the Olympics. But as I grew older and began to travel the world, my relationship to the Star-Spangled Banner began to change. Travel actually made me a more patriotic American in certain ways, since experiencing other countries helped me to better appreciate my own country. But as I developed a deeper and more complex sense of patriotism, I began to question the prescribed symbols of national pride we grow up with, since the joy I felt in my American identity often came in unexpected moments overseas. As a case in point, here's a clip from my very first travel dispatch for public radio back in 2002, as introduced by journalist and endurance athlete Diana Nyad. Reporter Rolf Potts is traveling in Asia at the moment with a specific goal of keeping his ears open. Here's a recent postcard he sent us from Syria about what he's been hearing. Let's eavesdrop. I'm walking past the room of a young Russian couple when I hear the sound. Steady and rhythmic, it leaks softly into the hall of our Aleppo hotel. Checking first to make sure no one's watching, I stop and press my ear to the door. For a moment, I hear nothing. Just the noises of the Syrian evening drifting in from outside. Then, faintly, the sound resumes, filling my whole body with the hum of ecstasy. I'm not listening in on illicit sex or mystical incantations, but a poorly recorded tape of James Brown songs, Popcorn, Night Train, and Sex Machine. A year ago, the godfather of soul wouldn't have had this kind of effect on me. But that was before I started a travel experiment that has changed the way I listen to the world. The experiment has been fairly straightforward. For the past year, I've been traveling through Asia without a Walkman. The only music I hear from day to day is what's being played in the streets, in restaurants, or at live performances. My intent was to keep an open mind and discover local music as I traveled from culture to culture. And, to a certain extent, this has been a success. But mostly I've been rediscovering American songs. Listening to Ring of Fire in Ulaanbaatar, Take Five in Beirut, or Sex Machine here in Aleppo, I feel like I've tapped into an energy, an inner passion that I've never experienced in this way before. 
That passion, I believe, is patriotism. Traditionally, of course, American patriotism is tied into public symbols, such as the flag, the Statue of Liberty, or the Constitution, all of them potent expressions as we've seen and felt in the last few months. But for me, these patriotic metaphors have always seemed a bit too direct and neatly packaged. Granted, traditional patriotism simplifies complicated ideals like inclusion, adaptation, and sacrifice, but at times it seems to be a bit lacking in soul. America's national anthem is a good example. Written to the tune of an old English drinking song, the Star-Spangled Banner is essentially an ode to the fact that we didn't get our butts kicked a couple hundred years ago at Fort McHenry. Moreover, its seldom-sung third stanza sounds downright vengeful. Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Put that to rap music and you'd get condemned in congressional hearings. So I've come to discover my own patriotic anthems in warmer, more infectious rhythms. And that's why James Brown has turned me into an eavesdropper here in Alapo. At moments like this, I feel like I'm part of a greater conspiracy of American magic and genius. So from this corner of Syria, I pledge allegiance to the flag, not out of duty, history, or politics, but because I got soul and I'm super bad. This is Rolf Potts from Aleppo, Syria, for The Savvy Traveler. It's been more than 15 years now since I researched that radio story. In some ways, it feels a bit dated because it's so rare now for travelers to be without their own music. But digital technology aside, I'm still fixated with the weirdness of the actual content and backstory of the Star-Spangled Banner. The song has been in the news in recent months, especially in the context of national anthem protests in the NFL. But all political gesturing aside, I've begun to wonder why this one hard-to-sing and at times lyrically distasteful song has become enshrined as sacred in the American imagination, especially when there are so many other patriotic songs to choose from. So to help unpack things, I got in touch with University of Michigan musicologist Mark Clegg, who's working on a book about the national anthem. And I'm really glad I did, because he helped me realize that the story of the Star-Spangled Banner is way more complex, and in some ways even weirder than I had previously assumed. Thanks to Mark and his natural storytelling abilities, this episode pretty much transforms Deviate into a deep-dive history podcast, one that touches on a hundred different historical issues in an attempt to explain a single song. Mark's insights are sure to transform the way you think about the Star-Spangled Banner, so let's sit back and listen while he delves into the complicated history behind America's national anthem. All right, I'm here with Mark Clegg, who is a associate professor of musicology and American culture at the University of Michigan. And real quick, Mark, uh, what does that mean? What does a musicologist do? Well, thanks for having me on, Ralph. Um, a musicologist is basically a historian of music. Um, it's you know, a big word that we use in the academy to uh, to talk about something sort of simple. That I just uh, study music and where it came from and where it's going, what it might mean, who wrote it, and why. Uh, well, in the interest of history, I'll tell you a little bit about my own personal history and my experience with the Star-Spangled Banner, and then uh, maybe you can give us uh, some enlightenment about the story behind the story of the song. Uh, you know, I grew up with a sentimental relationship to this song, oftentimes associated to sports. Uh, but then, as, I, as I've said in the introduction, um, while I was traveling overseas, I found a sort of a patriotic connection to non-official American songs like James Brown songs or Johnny Cash or even the Pixies and Public Enemy. Uh, and 
as I started to write an article, which later became a, a public radio dispatch about this experience, I realized that the Star Spangled Banner is sort of strange, you know, that it's, it's connected to a war that is a little bit obscure in American history and not very well understood. The music is sort of borrowed. Um, and it's almost like, musically for me, it was like a moment where you sort of realize that Santa's beard is a little bit uh, fake and that he maybe smells like booze, you know? Like, I couldn't unsee the complications between the, the Star Spangled Banner. And so now, instead of having just this um, sentimental association that I used to have with it, when I think about the Star Spangled Banner, um, suddenly I'm thinking about the complexities behind the song. And hopefully you can help me unpack this a little bit and help me understand... Uh, the the strangely and at times entertainingly complex story of the Star Spangled Banner. So let's start um, with sort of the the the, the school ch- children's lesson book version of Francis Scott Key standing on a ship some morning after a battle and realizing that the the Americans have not lost as as he thought they might and scribbling a poem uh, onto an envelope that would later become our national anthem. So what? How does the the myth of that creation of the song match up against what what really happened? What were the circumstances behind the creation of this song? Wow. Well, there's a bunch of great questions in there. I mean, I think one thing I'm happy to hear you say is that the song is really complex because I think, I mean, not only is that the magic of history, that the sort of simple received wisdom we have turns out to be just part of the story and that we discover a lot about ourselves by really getting into that. But it, it, really reenacts for me my own story of how I got interested in the Star Spangled Banner, which is through my teaching. So I teach a course in the history of music in the United States. And what I want people, you know, my students to think about is this whole question of, well, what does it mean to be um, American music? And what, why, what makes music American? What's special or distinctive about it? You know, what is our relationship as people who live here and citizens to that legacy? What is this music have to teach us? Is it something that's just about entertainment? Is it something that's political or has some kind of meaning? Is it something that could be a tool to help us live our lives better and more in a more fulfilling emotional way or in a more effective way in some, some cases? So, so it's all those questions I'm trying to get my students to wrestle with. And the best entree point I could possibly find is Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in you know August of 1969. Um, standing up just after the sun has risen and playing the Star Spangled Banner on an electric guitar and, and just sort of riveting the world. And that recording, of course, I mean, only a limited number of people were still there on that rainy money Monday morning. But it becomes like the climax of the documentary film Woodstock. And I think that's how people have really gotten to know it. And and you can see the complexity immediately. It's not just that story we hear in elementary school. I mean, here we have this mixed race guy playing at this sort of countercultural events. He's, he's playing it on an electric guitar. You know, is that appropriate? You know, what what does this all mean? Is it a protest? Is it patriotic? Is he sort of burning this, the flag in the song somehow, or is he doing something else? And and I think the answer to that is it's like all those things, and we can maybe get into this a little bit later. But um, you know, this does go all the way back to that story of Francis Scott Key on the boat, 
and you know in Baltimore um, Harbor and the Chesapeake Bay, and what it is part of is, is what's called, I remember today, is the War of 1812. Um, it's sometimes called America's Second War of Independence. So it's a war against Britain, who had been our sort of colonial creators. And we had this revolution in 1776 and, you know, with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and all these, these people, you know, Alexander Hamilton, all these people were involved. And we win that war and we become this free country. And yet we're still trying to figure it out. We're creating a constitution. So there's a lot of debate of what, what does it mean to be independent? What does it mean to be a democracy in this world that really had monarchies? Um, so we're, we're figuring it out. And that process of figuring out really goes on for, well, in some ways till today, we're still trying to figure it out. But in 1812, it reaches another crisis point with another war against the same people, against the British. And it starts over sort of economic interests. It starts over the impressment of sailors. And anyway, the United States actually declares war on on England, and we're pretty weak. We don't have much of a military. We don't have a navy, and and England is still the big military power, the big navy power on the planet. So, so we're um, we're struggling in this war, and uh, initially it doesn't go that badly because the um, British are also fighting Napoleon at this time. But then they defeat Napoleon, and then they send the real troops over to. Um, our new nation, and they basically are able to terrorize the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, and at, at the sort of worst moment, they actually burn our capital, Washington, D.C., Washington, to the ground. Not the whole thing, but they burn the, the uh, federal building, so the U.S. Capitol, the White House. Um, and it's pretty damaging. I mean, the Library of Congress, the, the deposit of all the books and knowledge of this new nation is in the Library of Congress, and all those books are destroyed. Um, you know, so it's it's really... It's, it's both a practical problem because these buildings have been destroyed, but also just a, a public relations disaster. I mean, we, we're trying to prove we belong in the community of nations of the world. And here, our old, you know, dad came back and kicked our butt, you know, and really put us back in our place and embarrassed us. And so it's that embarrassment that's almost worse. So anyway, um, to fast forward a little bit, we get to September 14th and Francis Scott Key has come out to into the, the Chesapeake Bay system. He's found the British ships as they're approaching Baltimore for another attack. Baltimore is the third largest city in the United States at this time. It's a particular thorn in the British side because they have a lot of marauders, a lot of um, privateers who use Baltimore as their home port and they go out and basically harass British commercial ships and try to steal their goods. Um, it really is a kind of era of piracy on the high seas. And uh, the United States is using that to their advantage. So even though we don't have much of a navy, we're basically telling private merchants and ships that if they can capture a British ship, they can keep all of the cargo um, for their payment. So that kind of stuff is going on. And so the British want to shut this down and um, sort of take revenge on Baltimore. Um, so they come, they come into the Bay. And in the days leading up to this, Francis Scott Key actually boards the Admiral's boat um, and they have conversations leading to the release of beans. And, uh, but, you know, the British basically don't think this is going to take long. It only took an hour to defend, defeat the capital of Washington, you know, the nation, Washington, D.C. So how long can it take to take down the third largest city? Not, not much longer, they're assuming. So they think it's not going to take too long. And they just say, well, you know, uh, Mr. Key and Mr. Beans, Mr. Skinner and other people are with him. You, you can go, but you've got to stay here for the battle. So they basically put his ship under guard um, during the course of the battle, which they think, again, is only going to take a couple hours because probably the 
the Baltimoreans are just going to surrender and negotiate a uh, sort of a kind of ransom or run runaway or who knows what's going to happen. But they don't think it's going to take very long. Um, what they don't really know about is they've got a Fort McHenry guards the mouth of Baltimore Harbor. And so the first thing the British have to do is bomb the heck out of that fort. And that's where all the rockets and bombs that we hear in the story, they're all aimed at Fort McHenry. And there's a thousand federal troops actually defending the fort, the fort and some local militia as well, but mainly federal troops. And the one thing they really have is bravery because they stay in that fort, they maintain their positions. And that's what the national anthem lyric that Francis Scott Key eventually will write is, is is praising is their heroism by defending Fort McHenry because it ends up preventing the, the British from coming in. And so they end up pulling away and leaving Baltimore. And that whole time, Francis Scott Key and his compatriots are on their own sh American ship, actually, watching the bombs and just, and of course, scared to death of what's going to happen. So as I often say, you know, what if you put an, a poet on a you know, anywhere and give them a lot of time with nothing to do. What are they going to do but but write a poem? And so that's what Francis Scott Key does. He he writes a, a lyric um, about the battle. It's four verses long. Another question is, does he write a poem or a song? And this really gets into questions about sort of culture in um, early 18th century America. Um, so you have to think back to a day in music when you don't have recordings, you don't have radio, you can't just go on Spotify and listen to anything you know, ever made. You, if you want to hear music, you basically have to make it yourself. You have to sing, you have to play an instrument. So people in colonial America and early federal America, much more used to singing and making music for their daily life than maybe we are today. You know, today we sing happy birthday, that kind of thing. Back then they, they, did, they did that. They also sang a lot of other things. Um, I mean, Happy Birthday, as we know it today, wasn't written until later in the 19th century, so they wouldn't have sung that song, but um, they would have sung a lot of songs, um, including a song called Anacreon in Heaven, which is actually has its origins in London in a British um, music club. It's often called a drinking club, and there certainly was plenty of drinking going on. You have to think this is back in the days before water treatment plants, and basically if you're going to drink anything safe, it had to either be tea, so it was heated up to the point where it would kill anything in it or fermented. So the only th things that were safe to drink were beer and, and tea. Couldn't drink water. Um, so there was a lot of drinking of beer, I'm sure, and, and wine and other spirits in this club. But it was really a social club. It was a pretty sophisticated club. If, sort of Jordan, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Friends, that kind of person would have been interested. Sort of you know, the white wig kind of set. And, uh, but they had a club song called Anacreon in Heaven, and it was sort of a funny song. It was an upbeat song. Um, actually have recorded it with a bunch of our students here at the University of Michigan for my class because I wanted to be able to play for them. So, um, you know, we'll listen to the recording um, of this song just so everybody can hear it. You'll notice that um, it's the song's faster. I mean, because it's a humorous song, it's meant to be uh, convey excitement of the members of the club to be, you know, socializing together, to be sharing music together, making music together, um, and it's also a kind of advertisement for the club. Like, come out and hang with, hang out with these guys. You're going to have a great time. Um, so it's it's an upbeat song called "To an Akron in Heaven," 
And it uses the melody that we know today as the Star Spangled Banner. So the text is, To Anacreon in heaven where he sat in full glee, a few sons of harmony, sent a petition. So it's all based on sort of Greek myth and, again, pretty sophisticated classical learning for people who are studying sort of Greek and Roman history. This is not a working class club. This is a sort of upper middle class doctors and lawyers kind of club. I'm curious, uh, too, I've, I know there's a lyric in the song that says, I instruct you like me to entwine the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's wine. Uh, so is that just sort of a, is that sort of an upper middle class way of saying, let's get drunk and sing songs? <laughs> so it's, it's Bacchus's vine um, rather than Bacchus's wine, but okay. the same thing it refers to wine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tagline in every verse. There are five verses, and it's definitely that kind of, uh, male sociality, you know, let's have fun and raise a glass. And the, the meetings of the Anacreontic Society, I think, give a better sense of what it is. So it, the meeting started at like seven o'clock in the afternoon and they, or in the evening, rather, and they started with a two hour symphony concert. So you'd hire musicians to come in and play orchestral pieces and chamber music pieces, solo piano, French horn duets, string quartets, and also like symphonies by Mozart and Haydn, who would have been contemporaries, like they were alive during the, this era. And so you would have been hearing like the newest, you know, symphony by, by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And then they would retire and have an hour dinner. They would sing uh, Grace at the end, and then they would come back to the main room where they had the concert. The things would be reset, not as a, a, a you know, audience chairs on the stage, but rather a group, a big, a front table that had singers on it. And then the, the members of the club and they were all guys, by the way. Uh, this is a male club. Women weren't weren't admitted. And uh, and then they would sing to an Akron in heaven to sort of start off what basically was an episode of glee. Like for the next three or four hours, going into the wee hours of the morning, they would be singing men's part songs. And so th they were definitely drinking and having food, but they were also p singing some really hard um, music. So you couldn't be too blasted to be able to to play in this club. But be well, this a part it definitely is a dream. So it's sort of both. The answer is yes. But it's it's not a pub. It's really sort of a sophisticated literary musicians club kind of thing. And this is this is actually part of the DNA of the Star Spangled Banner because it's famously hard to sing. And wasn't, exactly. wasn't that sort of by design? Yeah. So, so if you're a musicians club and you're trying to be better than all the other musicians club in town, one of the things you want to do is have your – um, club anthem kick the butt of any other club anthem and you want to show off how sophisticated you are and how skilled your singers are so one of the things about this song um, today we sing it you know here in at the University of Michigan in the big house for a football game on a Saturday afternoon with like 110,000 people um, in London you, it was a soloist who sang it and they were usually a hired ringer so you would basically get a singer from the West End in London. So you'd hire a sort of a Broadway star to come in and sing the song for the club. And the club would, would be would answer the chorus. So they would sing that last line and, and thus be it ever well let me get the exact line here. I, I have my lyric sheet in the Star Spangled Songbook, which I published to let people know all about this song. But the the tagline um, is uh, and besides, I'll instruct you, like me, to entwine the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's vine. So that would be sung first by the soloist and then repeated by all the members of the club. Um, so it's, but it's it's meant to be. It's hard because it's meant for a professional singer singing a solo. It's not meant for hundreds of and thousands of people to be singing it together. 
So how did we get from the point, like of all of the music that Francis Scott Key has to draw on, uh, mm-hmm. why did he pick this song? Why did he pick this difficult song that actually was created in England, which is the, the, you know, the fighting Great Britain? So there's a strange irony that he reaches back a few decades and, and brings a, in a rather difficult British song to, um, to be the tune of his patriotic um, anthem. Yeah, great question. So when I first started looking into this, I, I wondered if uh, Francis Kaki was sort of thumbing his nose at England, like, hey, I'm going to take your song and write this lyrics about how we beat you. And then you're going to, you know, to, to sort of mock you by using your own song against you. I don't think that was the case. I think what happened is this tune is part of a, a set of tunes that everybody knew, just like we know, take me out to the ball game and happy birthday. And, you know, so those kinds of things um, in the early uh, 19th century, around 1814, when the Battle of Baltimore is happening, everybody knew Anacreon in Heaven. So it was just one of those songs that everybody knew. And, and they knew it in America. It was not that everybody went over to England and knew it as an English song. They just heard it in their communities because there was this whole tradition, which we call the broadside ballad tradition, um, of writing new lyrics about contemporary events to tunes that were part of sort of the, the public sphere that sort of everybody knew as cultural knowledge. And there were lots of songs like this, Rosin the Bow, or, you know, if you think of uh, there are other examples like My Country Tis the Sea, you know, My Country Tis the Sea, Sweet Land of the um, of the icing, that song is, you know, is God save our glorious king, God save our glorious king, God save our king. It's, it's God save the king from, which is also, of course, even more so a British song. And we've made it into another American patriotic song. So that has actually thrown me off when they sing the British version, because I grew up with that as an American song. Exactly. So I think just like for you and me, My Contractivity is, Amer- is an American song. An Afghan in Heaven was for Francis Scott Key, an American song. And there, you know, we started celebrating the 4th of July in 1777. So one year after the Declaration of Independence. And there are songs written to celebrate the 4th of July that use the melody we now know as the Star Spangled Banner that have gone on for decades before Francis Scott Key picks the same tune. There are political campaign songs for Thomas Jefferson and for John Adams that use the same melody. There are you know, just sort of all these different songs celebrating military victories that all predate um, the Star Spangled Banner, including one, and this is sort of interesting. So Francis Scott Key himself wrote a song in 1805 um, called When the Warrior Returns. And it's about the Barbary Pirates War. So one of the American victories in the early part of the um, century, sort of the first naval heroes were Charles Stewart and Stephen Decatur, who went over and fought the the pirates basically in what's now Algeria and uh, is under Thomas Jefferson's presidency. And anyway, they came back to Washington, D.C., and this young, aspiring lawyer who had just moved to town, Francis Scott Key, was invited to this banquet in their honor, and then he writes a song, and he uses exactly exactly the same tune that he would use nine years later when he's in a boat in Baltimore Harbor thinking of how he can honor another set of military hitters who had just saved us. So it's sort of like America's historical version of Elton John writing Candle in the Wind to Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana? Yep, exactly. Yep, you're updating 
lyrics to fit um, to fit a new situation. But also, you know, the energy and part of the spirit of the the previous song comes forward. You know, in the, in the sense of candle in the wind, the kind of love and the hopelessness of of you know a death that happened too soon. Um, in the case of the Star Spangled Banner, he's actually tapping into this history of patriotic song that's being used to celebrate independence, the Fourth of July, military heroism, all that stuff, you know, leadership and our presidents, all that stuff is sort of packed into the kind of unconscious, subconscious associations of this tune. So he's using an American tune to celebrate American heroism. The the relationship to Britain is something we understand better today in a world that has the internet and, you know, communications and we can just the whole notion of knowledge and international boundaries is much firmer today than it was back in Francis Key's day where your knowledge was largely the people you knew and the experiences you had and maybe some stuff you read in the newspaper, but it, it, it wasn't about going to the internet and searching the source of every little thing, you know? So I, I think for Francis Key, he wasn't writing a, a new American lyric to a British song. He was writing a new American lyric to a traditional American song. Okay, so let's let's get into the lyrics themselves, um, because we're we're used to singing that first stanza, um, and so it's right. it's like a one one minute one and a half minute song when we sing it before baseball games, but it's actually a four stanza song. And when I when I was doing my NPR story and researching, I, I was sort of uh, startled by the third stanza in particular. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Uh, so talk a little bit about the lyrics, and 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 then I, I want to focus on the third lyric because in my I actually when I wrote this story I was in Damascus, Syria, so I was using the like the American Library. They didn't. This was back in two thousand one, and and Assad didn't allow the internet, and so I had a limited understanding. I and and so when it when it talks about um, the terror of flight and the gloom gloom of the grave and the blood washing out the foul footsteps pollution of hiring enslaved. It sounded like gangster rap, you know. It sounded like <laughs> yeah. it, it sounded like a real sort of in your face, in in a in a pretty raw and startling way. So uh, tell me about the lyrics in general, about that third lyric, uh, and why it is the way it is. No, great great question. So, well, I think there's there's a bunch of important things about the lyric. I mean, one thing is that um, I mean, Francis Scott Key himself was a pretty you know sophisticated, educated guy, and so there actually are um, two sets of lyrics written by two different um, poets, Francis Scott Key and somebody else who who's anonymous, um, using the same tune, all about the Battle of Baltimore. The um, the other set of lyrics is like 15 stanzas long. Um, this and Francis Scott Key's is four. Another important thing I think about Key is that he's stuck on this boat, and so he's probably heard some information about what's happened, but he's it's sort of information poor. Like he doesn't really know the names of the generals. He doesn't know if anybody was killed who needs to be celebrated in this lyric. Um, so his lyric is pretty abstract. Most of broadside lyrics are really specific, like Admiral Cochran did this, and then, you know, Admiral Armistead did that, and, you know, they sort of show how the battle plays out, and, and you mention all the, the heroes by name. Francis Key doesn't really know anybody's name, who's he doesn't really know what's happened, so his lyric becomes necessarily abstract. It's about symbols. It's about the Star Spangled Banner, the flag as this sort of concept about stars. And, you know, it's got some things, but in terms of like the bombs bursting in air and is the flag still there and these questions and these anxieties he's having as he's on the boat, wondering if the new nation is going to survive. But they're necessarily sort of abstract and symbolic, which is part of the reason why so much of it still works today, um, particularly that first verse. 
Um, the other verses don't work quite as well because they're a little bit more specific. So I would say verses two and three um, really attack the British. I mean, they're they're asking basically for vengeance. I mean, particularly the reference to blood and and in the third verse. What's interesting about the third verse is um, it all but disappeared between World War One and the invention of the internet. Um, so in World War One, when the United States gets involved and it's you know on the side of the Allied powers and it's against Germany, um, we're not now we're friends with Britain, right? So we're with France, we're with Britain, we're with Belgium, um, and so. In the early versions, printed versions of the Star Spangled Banner from around World War I, verse 3 disappears entirely. So in 1931, when the words and music known as the Star Spangled Banner become the official anthem, I think it only includes Key's original first, second, and fourth verses. The third verse is sort of erased. But these days, once the internet is there and we could sort of put up the original and people got to know that again, it's brought back this controversy over particularly the reference to slavery. So... What happened in 1814, one of the British tactics for terrorizing the American government was to free slaves on the plantations in the Chesapeake. When, so when they would land and, and march to Washington, along the way, any plantation, any place that had slaves, they would offer the slaves freedom. And you know, to their credit, they actually followed through on that. In the Revolutionary War, both the American and British sides offered freedom to slavery, slaves, and they didn't end up freeing anybody. In the War of 1812, the British promised freedom to slaves and actually did free them, um, ended up transporting them either to Trinidad or to Halifax, Nova Scotia. There are black communities there today that are descendant from the slaves that were freed and, and the captives released. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty cool. From Francis Scott Key's perspective as a lawyer, as an American, this was economic terrorism. This was coming in and just letting everybody go and, and creating fear in the countryside that all these slaves had been released and they, they were out of control. And in fact, some of them were inducted into the British military and they actually fought in a special division called the Colonial Marines. So the idea being that if, if the slaves helped the British win, then they would be provide for their own families and their own freedom. And uh, again, they, the British did honor that commitment and the colonial marines and their families were freed. So I think the reference to slaves is a reference to this tactic by the British to try to destabilize American um, sort of the economic underpinning of slave states, which um, Baltimore was one of them. Maryland was one of those at the time. And for Francis Scott Key, this was a, you know, a dastardly tactic. Um, Key's own relationship to slavery is really fascinating. And I think, you know, the interesting question that talking about this third verse brings up today is like, should this still be our anthem if if it refers and sort of grows out of a time of of this sort of unacceptable treatment of human beings as things, this this kind of absolutely heinous and despicable treatment. Right. Of actually, Actually, yep. uh, in, in the recent uh, publicity about, you know, anthem protests and such, uh, uh, one writer s called it a diss track to black people who had the audacity to fight for their freedom. A lot of other articles appeared online sort of questioning um, uh, Francis Scott Key's relationship uh, to abolition, his his experience mm -hmm. as a slave owner. And so let's look at that a little bit. I mean, it, it feels yeah. like a legitimate question. Is this... Absolutely. is this um, 
does this taint the song? The fact that that all of these that, that this slave verse is, is involved, and he's actually from from the point of view of a freed slave, m- maybe actually that would be a rational choice. No, it's definitely a rational choice to join the Colonial Marines, and so it's. I mean, it does taint the song. I think. I mean, it's. Um, there's a couple things about it that I think are worth taking in consideration. One is that um, African Americans fought on both sides of the war. So there were African Americans who defended uh, Baltimore, who were among the professional soldiers in the U.S. Army um, in Fort McHenry, including one of those dozen people who died was a, uh, an African American man. There were African Americans in the um, flotilla that defended the fort against a, a sort of a midnight secret uh, boat attack on barges. Um, a guy named Charles Ball, who was really heroic in defending the fort. So in my mind, the reference to uh, hirelings and slaves, so the British mercenaries and the, probably the colonial marines that's in the land, is, is a way of sort of saying the enemy. And there were blacks and whites on both sides, both, both Francis Scott Key's side that he was fighting alongside, and then um, also on the British side. So I think it's more about vilifying the enemy than it is about singling out African Americans for derision. Um, so I don't think the song is inherently racist in that regard because it's also praising the blacks that were defending and fighting on the American side. Um, Francis Scott Key was definitely an anti-abolitionist. I mean, he, but it's, he was not pro-slavery. So this is the tricky thing about Key. He, he freed all of his slaves during his lifetime. He, as a lawyer, worked gratis to defend black Americans from illegal impressment as slaves. He freed, he worked for free to free the children of slaves from slavery. So he's, his own views are, are really complicated. What he wanted was sort of the gradual and I would say controlled end of slavery. So that slavery would, would fall apart over time in a way that would release blacks to an economic world where they could support themselves because they could get education and be trained and then also not disrupt the white economic order. And that's his fatal moral compromise is that he wasn't willing to disrupt the economic order in order to right this moral wrong. Well, there's a, a, a Francis Scott Key, notwithstanding, there's a racial dynamic that sort of follows this song into the modern day. But while we're still in this period of history, you know, I had Canadian roommates back in the day, and they swore that the winner of the War of 1812 was Canada. Mm-hmm. And, and, in, and in retrospect, it's not a particularly glorious war. It, um, and so how does... I mean, uh, it, uh, the, the Battle of Fort McHenry was obviously uh, a key moment of resolve for the United States. Um, does the fact that it's from a fairly obscure war that sort of ended up in a draw, um, does that affect the potency of the song or, or underpin it? What do you think of, of the fact that it's, it's, it's not a revolutionary war song, uh, but it's this other sort of um, less popular sequel to the Revolutionary War? No, I think that's a great point, Ralph. So, yeah, I think this war is sort of an embarrassment to us. I mean, we they burned our own capital. We attacked Canada and seized all this uh, land, and yet we didn't end up with any of it. Um, so it's sort of, I think it's an, a war we'd like to forget. And so certainly when I took high school American history, I don't think we've talked about 
the War of eighteen twelve much at all. So I think it gets lost for that reason. It's I would say it's people are more aware of it now only because we just had the two hundredth anniversary of the War of eighteen twelve, and so there was a lot of celebration. At least at least those of us who are Star Spangled Banner historians were aware of a lot of that celebration. Um, so I think there's probably more awareness now, but it's still not a not an important turning point in American history because basically. Everything at the, the the peace treaty of Ghent that that ended the war after the Battle of New Orleans that Andrew Jackson won, um, basically put everything back the way it was, and nothing much changed. And so it's not something we're going to really study in history because we study historical turning points where big changes happen, and this was not one of those things. What I do do think changed was America's vision of itself and the need for, for example, a strong military. Um, when we declared war, we had this really weak navy, and what we realized is we needed needed to have a navy to defend ourselves. And I think that message um, became important because of the War of 1812. And one of the things I often point out are things that sort of sort of funny for me is that um, I mean these days, like the one thing we know about this, the Star Spangled Banner, our flag, is that we have the same number of stars as number of states. Like whenever there's a state added, we add we automatically the next year on July 4th, we put another star on the flag. So um, in the War of 1812, there were 15 stars on the flag, and there were also 15 stripes. And so the, the, the plan originally had been every time you had a state, you put a, an extra star and an extra stripe. Um, but at that time, there were actually 17 states, and nobody much cared that there were that it was out of date. It had been out of date for like 10 years. And it didn't really matter because the flag as a symbol wasn't that important. Um, it was a symbol for the military. It was a symbol for the Navy. But, you know, probably in your lifetime, if you're, you're an American, you only meet, again, your neighbors. You're not hearing the news, maybe, you know, meeting people or going overseas. You're not hopping on a plane or an ocean liner and going to Paris. And so negotiating the boundaries between international groups of people you know, like we have with the Olympics coming up, you know, the, the one thing we have is we have these different teams and they all come from different countries. And so each team has to have its own symbols that tell you which which country it's from and which team you're on. Um, in 1814, you probably would never see more than one person, you know, from another country. So you didn't need to have symbols that helped people figure out who you are. If you were in the neighborhood and you lived there, you were another American. So um, it's only more recently that these symbols have become so important. But the Star Spangled Banner, the song, ended up making the Star Spangled Banner, the flag, more important. Um, so it does sort of ride this wave of patriotism after the victory with the War of 1812. It becomes more popular. I mean, we, in 1826, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the United States. There's a new set of lyrics written for the uh, 4th of July that year, too, the same melody. Um, so anyway, the, the the country seeming firmer and, and more real and something to be proud of, and that, again, continues to strengthen Francis Scott Key's song. The, um, it continues to be used in political campaign songs. So um, William Henry Harrison, the, the Tippecanoe and Tyler II candidate, had 14 different campaign songs, different lyrics, all written to the tune. We know as the Star Spangled Banner. Abraham Lincoln, um, when he ran for president the second time, had a a campaign song written to um, the, the same tune we know as the Star Spangled Banner. So it's it's really continues to be popular, continues to be used. There are abolitionist songs. Maybe the most powerful lyric I know um, written about to the tune is a, a lyric called Oh Say Do You Hear, and it refers to slavery and the end of slavery. It's from 1843. It was published um, in 
uh, William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, um, sort of nationally exposed. And it, it's quite vivid, but it, it uses the, the knowledge people have of Francis Scott Key's song, right? So that's, oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave? And it basically says, how can we have a land where we claim it's free when all of these human beings are enslaved? I mean, there's a, and so it's that irony between the, the lyric of Francis Scott Key's song that, that is being really brought to the fore in the, this anti-slavery song. So there just are dozens of songs. There are songs from the, actually that the Confederates wrote mocking the, the North, mocking the Union. Um, you know, that say like, oh, say, can't you see? <laughs> you know, so it's um, there's this whole dialogue, this social dialogue going on in this tune using this patriotic resonance to talk about things like women's rights or or the freedom of slavery or or the the evils of alcohol and calling for temperance all of these social issues are being debated through the lyrics of these broadside ballads and one of the most popular is the star spangled banner in this tune and it's it's really when we get to world war 1 where it gets locked down um, because of the fact that we have this for the first time a world war an international war where the song becomes a symbol of the different factions in the war and lives are at stake and sort of the future of democracy at stake and and we start to have recording we start to have radio broadcasts a few years after that all of these things start to bring international groups of people into contact with one another and and this the need for a musical symbol of the you know, your country becomes ever more important. So the the twentieth century is is different from the nineteenth century in the way the song works. The nineteenth century is about sort of changing the words. In the twentieth century, it's about changing the music, right? So Jimi Hendrix is not he's not singing at all, but if you say the words um, while he's playing, you'll realize that all of the things he does fit the lyric. So he's really singing the song in his mind. He's singing the lyric through his guitar. So when he says the rocket's red glare, you know, the, and the bomb's bursting in air, that's where he goes crazy. And there's sort of this psychedelic improvisation illustrating bombs and sirens and all these things that are a reference not only to the Battle of Fort McHenry, but also to sort of rioting in Vietnam and, you know, the death of Martin Luther King and, and sort of the sirens and, and things that were emblematic of the 60s and the protests that are happening there. So I think overall the, the message is that the song has, has insinuated itself, has burrowed deep into what it means to be American, into the experience of being American. You know, people will say, well, why don't we have like America the Beautiful? Why isn't that our national anthem? That's a prettier song. It's not so controversial. The lyrics are better. It's, it's about beauty and sea to shining sea and redwood forest and all this great stuff. You know, why isn't that our song? And I think it's because at these moments of crisis, when there's a natural disaster, when there's an attack, when there's something, you need to galvanize and bring people together. And this, the spirit of the Star Spangled Banner and the, the fact that it's impossible to sing and it takes this kind of heroic commitment even to make the words work, to sing those high notes, that kind of energy and, and, and passion is what is needed in that song. And I think Americanly Beautiful is a beautiful song for peacetime, but it's not a beautiful song or an effective song for galvanizing people's sacrifice at a moment of crisis. And so for me, I, I don't, we may change this, the national anthem. We may find another song. I don't think it's going to happen because someone wants to write one. I think it'll happen because of a historical moment where this amazing thing happens and people rise up to save the world. And there's a musical um, marker of that moment 
and that song will become maybe the better national anthem someday. But it's it's hard to sort of write a national anthem or commission an anthem or make one up because they're born of amazing moments. They're not really created to, to order. Um, That's an interesting observation because when I was young, I loved the Star Spangled Banner, but I also for Christmas got the Jazz Singer album one year and Neil Diamond sings this song, America, which I thought was great. And I wondered even as a little kid, well, well, why don't we update the Star Spangled or the, the national anthem every once in a while? Which is sort of like a kid-like thing to think. And I think your point about the, the the military urgency of the song makes it what it is. But I'm curious, was America the Beautiful or other songs at one time in contention to be the national anthem? Were there, uh, if not America the Beautiful, was there another song with a, a bit of military urgency that might have been a competitor mm-hmm. to the Star Spangled Banner? Or was it always the, the clear front runner because of its military associations and its popularity with baseball games in the early 20th century and stuff? So great question. Um, in the, so bills were introduced around the time of World War One to make the Star Spangled Banner the national anthem. And they were always driven by politicians from the state of Maryland who really wanted to see this this happen. Um, the There were many other songs considered. So America, the Beautiful, uh, My Country to the uh, Yankee Doodle, a song called Hail Columbia, which was in the 19th century. Hail Columbia is actually a, a, a lyric that's written to a president's march that was written for George Washington um, back in the 1790s. And so it's uh, it was really as much the national anthem in the sort of pre-Civil War days as as the Star Spangled Banner. Um, the Star Spangled Banner was sort of the only popular choice. And then what I would say is it was that that history that I talked about in the in the 19th century where it becomes this lyric or this melody for this social conversation and that the Civil War makes sacred. The fact that people sang it over and over again and that it sort of built its way into American cultural memory is what makes it the anthem. So in 1931, you know, the Congress did pass the bill and make it the official anthem and Herbert Hoover signed that bill. So it's official from 1931. But in World War One, it's definitely functioning as the anthem. And probably the, the Spanish American War 1798, or sorry, 1898, it's following, it's really the national anthem. So it's it's more what people do with music than what politicians say about the status that makes it official. So you could, I think the government tomorrow could, you know, there could be a bill to uh, um, abolish or set a new national anthem. You know, we could go with a Lee Greenwood song or whatever, Um, you know, but it wouldn't really change the way people thought and used the song um, because it's really about, I mean, I guess it's an ultimate expression of democracy. It's really what people do um, and not so much the bill. If I could change anything official, I think it'd probably be worth making it um, official that that third verse should be taken out of the lyric, um, like it was in World War One, that that's not actually part of the anthem. That, that wouldn't be a bad move from my perspective. And that that's happened with a lot of lyrics around the anthem lyrics around the world that they've you know adjusted the lyrics or officially changed things to to just show that you know the country moves on. But that's all fascinating. I have actually one tangential question and then one sort of wrap up question. The tangential question mm-hmm. that occurred to me while you were talking. Uh, it sounds like there's a certain un- unofficial spontaneity or unofficial officialness to the story, so or to the song before it was confirmed in 1931. So does that mean in the in the Olympics in 1896 and, and 1904 and 1928, uh, what, do you know was the Star Spangled Banner played for gold medalists or something else, or what was the what was the the drill there? So 
initially the Olympics were about bringing countries together for peace. And I don't believe that any national anthems were paid for any of the events. There, the, all the, the medals were um, for the early games were awarded at a closing ceremony where everybody got their medals at once. So you didn't have the individual medal podium ceremonies that we have today. Um, to my knowledge, the first uh, podium uh, ceremonies for individual events dated from 1920, and that the the ritual we see now about the flags rising and the the uh, national anthems being played is basically an invention of the television era, right? It was when the Olympics started to be televised and we would see them as kind of nationalist um, spectacles in every country that you had these moments of celebrating the individual events and their victories. Um, initially, nationalism was very much pushed into the background of the Olympics and, you know, flags were not a part really of the Olympics. It's, it's more of a modern invention, um, it's, at least that's my understanding. The history is a little hard to find, um, I would say. And I think that's because, in part, the, the songs, those kind of nationalist sentiments were not part of the, the games for its first, say, 20 years of history. That's really interesting, and that's something I didn't know. Uh, one final question. I was uh, When I was researching this, I came across a version of the Star Spangled Banner sung by Marvin Gaye before the 1983 mm -hmm. NBA All-Star Game, and it blew me away. I mean, it was just, it was such a unique and original rendition of the song, and so I'm curious, clearly you're, you're intrigued by the, the Hendrix version. Do you have a favorite rendition of the Star Spangled Banner? Oh, man. Well, Hendrix would definitely be up there, and I love the Marvin Gaye version, too. I mean, he has just like a, a rhythm track, you know, a little drum machine, and he sings over top of it. I think it's, it's incredibly soulful. I th you know, I think Jose Feliciano's version from the 1968 World Series is really powerful. Um, you know, the other one I would really put up there as one of the greatest of all time is uh, Whitney Houston's performance. I think it was the 1990 Super Bowl. Um, you know, just another really incredible performance. It was, you know, during the Gulf War, uh, sort of a moment of real concern in the country. And, and she just sort of knocks it out of the park. And you see a kind of um, sincerity and power in her performance, even though it turned out she was lip syncing, which is really pretty sort of ironic. But um, one of the chapters of my book actually goes through and traces the history of every Super Bowl performance. And uh, a lot of fascinating things. I mean, sometimes it was played by solo trumpet. There actually is one Super Bowl where they sang America the Beautiful and they didn't sing the Star Spangled Banner. And one another Super Bowl where they mash up America the Beautiful and, and the Star Spangled Banner and, and sort of as a, a kind of a medley. So, uh, but that's a, a great way. I think, you know, since 9-11, um, the moment of patriotism expressed by the anthem, I would say, especially at football games, has really sort of been ratcheted up. And there's a lot of, you know, emphasis placed on it. You know, every All-Star game or every, you know, division championship and the Super Bowl, of course, you know, the Star Spangled Banner is a huge focus. And, you know, it's it's both, I think, a sincere patriotism. It's also, you know, part of the marketing of sports to make it seem patriotic and sort of essentially American. It's it's also part of, you know, I think the, you know, it's great to have some controversies. Not, not everybody watches and loves football, but um, even those who, who don't watch, you know, want to hear, you know, who who fumbled the notes of the Star Spangled Banner, who messed up the words, you know, that's always news too. So I think that controversy of, you know, how it was sung and why it was sung in a certain way is uh, no news is good news or bad news and or no press is bad press, you know, when it comes to marketing. So I, th I think that actually serves its purpose too. Well, it's interesting you, for all the racial complications that have gone, uh, that are connected to the story of the Star Spangled Banner, that it's actually singers of color have sung the most, um, 
famous versions recently. You know, you think of Whitney Houston and Marvin Gaye and Jose Feliciano. So that's sort of an interesting footnote to that. And maybe part of the the complex texture of the song and how it has been rendered over the years. Absolutely. There's a huge politics in a statement of, you know, who is the anthem for and who has the right to sing it and what style can they sing? And, you know, is it in the vernacular of one group of people over another? Um, you know, can we sing it in Spanish, for example? You know, and it turns out that in the course of history, um, you know, we've translated the anthem to all sorts of languages as a way of welcoming people to the United States and making them feel part of our country. And, you know, for me, that openness and the way in which the anthem becomes a kind of umbrella that everybody can can feel part of is great. You know, it's certainly true, I think, with, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and others who've been led the anthem protests. And, you know, I'd emphasize they're not so much protesting the song, they're protesting inequality and injustice in the nation and using the song as a platform, which frankly, I think Francis Kaki would be, you know, supportive of. He wanted to make the country, you know, use music to make the country a better place. But it's, um, you know, I think if there are people in our nation who, you know, don't feel the song represents them. And I think, you know, we, it's not just about changing the song, though. I think it's really about changing the nation so everybody is included. The twilight's last gleam. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. You're listening to Marvin Gaye's iconic rendering of the Star Spangled Banner as performed live at the NBA All-Star Game in Los Angeles in 1983. More about Marvin Gaye's take on the song, as well as everything that was just mentioned, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviaterolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Theme music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman helps me with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Hey.